we're good. Okay. And you can hear me, obviously? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is going to be another poem, I guess, another, like, modern inconvenience, like frustration and, like... Uh... Probably. <laughs> Just work out the anger in a poetic verse? Yeah, exactly. All right. You're good to go now? Like, we figured out how to, like, navigate the uh, the perils of our technology and our uh, this modern life? Yeah. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host, Sammy. This is not a deep fake. This is really me. Which I suppose is what a deep fake would say. Yunnan. This is a captivating conversation between myself and Chris Banks, a poet based in Kitchener, Ontario. Like most interviews, it was sparked by his latest work, his sixth poetry collection called Deep Fake Serenade. In short, Deep Fake Serenade is a collection of poems about how we move through this technological modern world. Uh, a chef is no different than a poet. One makes food for your heart, the other makes food for your soul. In Chris's case, his ingredients are pop culture, the mundane in a world of magic, gleeful sarcasm, and a playful punk rock attitude to clever wordplay. To quote Chris Banks from this My Summer Layer episode, writing a poem is an act of mischief. It's an act of the imagination. What an amazing line. As you can instantly gleam from the title, Deepfake Serenade is about hiding behind avatars. Think of it this way. Is Superman the real person and Clark Kent is the mask, or is it the reverse? Clark Kent is the authentic individual and Superman is the mask. Which one is the secret identity? We discuss his work, his poetry, through a musical lens, so we reference Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Joe Strummer and The Clash, Sex Pistols, Violent Femmes, Violent Femmes, yo. This is an engaging conversation that should be accompanied by a Spotify playlist. And I get it. You don't read poetry. Most people don't. But because of the relevant topics and the honed perspectives Chris Banks generously offers in Deepfake Serenade, it means this is more than just poetry. Deepfake Serenade is an amazing book well worth reading, especially if you don't read poetry, because I think the words will surprise you. And you can get into this. Something to contemplate as you enjoy my conversation with poet Chris Banks. Sound, the final frontier. My Summer Lair is an enterprise, a pop culture voyage with a continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new creators and celebrate established producers, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now here is your host, Sammy Yunan. Your book and your poem, Deepfake Serenade. The sixth line is, inside every one of us is a deep fake, which is a great line. So as a collection, what is the Deepfake Serenade? Okay, that's a, a sort of a hard question right off the bat, but I'll, I'll do my best to answer it. I think, you know, what I was going for in that idea is that everybody has a persona that we sort of wear out to work or into online spaces. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, a lot of the time we're hiding our true true selves from the world. And there we're 
presenting a sort of a representation of ourselves that's not necessarily our true self. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's what I was getting at uh, when I called the whole collection Deepfake Serenade in the, with specifically that line in particular. You're talking about like the old man behind the wizard in Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah, like, that's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? Because like the wizard was really cool and special effects and like, <laughs> right? Like kind of all yeah. over the top. But then when uh, it was a Toto who pulls the curtain back, then yeah. you see like this frail old man in like, uh, this is generalization, but it's like there's nothing really cool about seniors, right? Like it's just an old man. It's kind of disappointing. That's right. Yeah, yeah, there's no filters, mm -hmm. right, for for the old man. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a good uh, illusion to make. Uh, that would certainly, you know, that's the kind of illusion that would find itself into my poetry or into a book, for sure. And does that disappointment with the public face not being, like, as cool as the behind-the-scenes face, is that disappointment as well kind of echoing throughout the, the poems and the, the book itself, the collection? Yeah, I mean, I think we're like we're just slammed with so much pop culture mm -hmm. and you know sensory details, and then you know the reality, you know, mm -hmm. beyond the social media personas is, is you know life is really difficult now. People are just getting by, and you know inflation and all of these things. So I yeah, my poems kind of seesaw between sort of people's sort of authentic reality. You know, uh, things dealing with depression or bills or or what have you. Life. And then these, yeah, life, right? And then th this sort of social media compulsion to, you know, um, cast ourselves in the best light possible using filters or, you know, you know, everybody has to have that perfect Instagram shot. Mm -hmm. And poetry, my poetry in particular, wants to sort of reflect both those things uh, in my poems. To kind of extend the thread of what you're talking about, when sure. you hear actors like talking about uh, interviews about the film that they just made or the film they're working on or whatever, they talk a lot about like the skill of listening and how like that's a really prized skill for actors to listen <clears throat> to each other. And so for the work you're doing, the poetry that you're writing, like is listening the same kind of prized skill as it is for actors or is it more observation? That's your prized skill. I think observation is is the the skill you need most as a poet, uh, and then listening, of course, to the voice inside you where the poem wants to go. That's really important. I think when you're a young poet, mm -hmm. I think you get you have this idea what would be for cool subject matter, or for a cool idea for a chapbook, and you tend to try to hammer uh, your poems out. Uh, based on what you think will be uh, how it will be perceived by other people I think only as you get like further along in your poetry career that you really start to listen mm -hmm. for where the poem wants to go you start caring a lot less about you know the external world or uh, where other people are going to um, you know encounter this poem and what they're going to think and you really turn your gaze inward and you start listening for where, uh, uh, you know, all your poetry is coming from. Because once you do that, that's when the poetry takes off. That's when you get really, really good. Uh, you know, everything flows from that, um, from that act. Is it, are you talking about like freedom in a sense? You're almost like free to like 
go down that, I guess, for lack of a poetic term, right? The Robert Frost, the unmarked path, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And see if you can get lost or discover something cool or a magical forest or something like that's freedom. What you're talking <laughs> about, right? Yeah. Well, well freedom and, and surprise. Like, I mean, so much poetry, you know, is it'll begin with something like, you know, when I was eight, this happened mm -hmm. and then they'll trick it out with a, a simile or a metaphor uh and then there'll be some epiphany at the end and that's that can be you know and i'm i'm as guilty as the next person for writing that kind of poetry in my early um my first book in particular but i'm not very interested in that kind of poetry uh you know i feel like there's uh sort of um a way to write poems that people get into, uh, you know, especially with narrative poems. And I'm much more interested in freeing up language. I think that's where that word freedom comes in. Uh, and, uh, and the element of surprise, you know, I want to be surprised by my poems. I want to be surprised by every other line where the poem is going to go next. I have no idea. I don't want to know. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, I think for a lot of young poets, they're like, oh, I'm going to write this poem about this time. You know, my parents were really angry at me at the cottage when I was eight because <laughs> I was I was hiding. And, you know, you're and they they trick it all out with a, a couple of interesting lines. But essentially, it's a memory. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I certainly wrote like that, you know, and I think a, a lot of people write like that because they want to recapture the past. They have that sort of nostalgia for childhood or nostalgia for their teen years or or they want to change their feeling towards um, a memory, which is fine, which is a good reason to write a poem. But for me, my modus operandi is surprise, you know, and trying to free up language to do something new. This is kind of a weird i guess analogy or whatever from what you're saying yep. but like the the new red hot chili peppers album was unlimited love yeah. and they wrote it like sure. that like they realized like when they were going to the studio to write this album it's a double album but they were looking back on their career as you said and they've been together for like 20 30 odd years now so sure. they've had hits they've had failures they've had really iconic music like under the bridge right when you hear yep. that opening chords of under the bridge it's like one of the most like iconic sounds so they realized when they looked at the back of their career, they were free, right? And they could just write yeah. whatever songs they wanted. They didn't have to worry about being number one anymore or like winning a Grammy or anything mm -hmm. like this. Like, it's kind of like what you're saying about surprise. We're like, let's just go into the studio, hit record and then play and then see what comes out. Yeah, that's a good analogy. And I like those guys. Like, I, I remember them, you know, 25 years ago saying they're keeping their nose to the funk stone. Mm -hmm. And I always like... <laughs> uh, I always think of, of myself as keeping the, my nose to the poem stone. Yeah, <laughs> that's a direct correlation to them. Like they're hard workers, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the attitude you have to have. If you're thinking about writing music or poems or a novel for an award, you're you're gonna get fucking nowhere mm -hmm. in you know anywhere. I think uh, because you have to really be doing it for the right reasons. And, and again, you know your voice is going to change, you know, in terms of the red hot chili peppers, like their music is going to change. Uh, you know, people shouldn't be doing the same old, same old. And thank God we changed. Like I, I would hate to be like, 
you know, listening to the same music I listened to when I was 17, mm-hmm. you know, for for a lifetime. Like, it's fine to listen to in the car every once in a while. I get this nice connection to my 17-year-old self. But, you know, I'm much more interested in the sort of bands and the music uh, that I'm more into nowadays, for sure. So This mindset you're talking about, this is a very punk mindset, isn't it? You know what I mean? Like, kind of this hustle, this, like... I don't want to say aggressive. That's a very strong word, but you get what I'm saying. Like it seems like a very punk mindset of like. Yeah, well, I I listened to a lot of punk music when I was 17, 18 years old. You know, I went to uh, some punk shows, uh, but not not very many. I have to, you know, like I grew up in a small town, so I was about as punk as you can be in a town of under five thousand <laughs> yeah. people. You know, it's not very punk in, in comparison to you know kids who grew up in in Toronto or, you know, Ottawa or Montreal or Vancouver, places like that. But yeah, I think that's, a, you know, I like the punk DIY attitude. I really love attitude. that. That's I the think, word I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's so fun. Like, that's the thing people always talk about with, with the punk movement was like just how aggressive it was and like how, you know, the the social commentary and all of those things were really important, but they rarely look at just how fun it was, you know, mm-hmm. like just the, you know, here, let's get our friends together. Let's form a band. Let's come up with like stupid names for ourselves. Let's like, you know, let's do ridiculous things on stage. Uh, let's, you know, like design our own cover art. Let's like it, all of that stuff uh, really influenced me very early on. And, and so for my own poetry, yeah, I like that DIY sort of really just uh, pull a poem apart and put it back together and pull it apart and put it back together until it starts doing something really interesting on a page. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of like what you were just saying now, where like you don't know what the next line is. You're hoping for a surprise. And that's the same thing with yeah. the- do it yourself attitude right we're like oh, yeah. you're kind of putting together and then after you xerox all these things together then you have like a little magazine or whatever it is or like fanzine sure. right like you don't know what you have yeah. until you get to the end that's right exactly yeah that's a that's a great uh analogy to to pull t- towards what i'm trying to do in poetry and, and especially with like zine culture and things like that you know and so you were saying, like, when you're younger, you write from a certain mindset, and you said you were guilty of that now. Like, so as you yeah. shift now and you're getting older, like, what is your mindset now? I guess if you want to, like, go back to the Chili Peppers, are you doing, like, I guess, scar tissue kind of stuff? Like, is that the kind of vibe? Or, like, what, what's your attitude when you're, like, sitting to write now? Like, you're aware of more of the subject matter? <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting question because that's – the next question uh i've got a book coming out in two years with nightwood editions it's called uh, alternator and uh, i it's basically three different manuscripts that i've uh pulled uh the best poems out of and each section are the best poems from each of those manuscripts so uh it's sort of three books in one mm-hmm. uh, i think it'll be really cool I think the voice is very different in all three sections. Uh, so I think I'm, I've done something new. Uh, like the first section is a lot like the style of poetry you see in Deep Fake Serenade, my more recent book. Then the middle section is a book of Ghazals. Uh, so really tight, um, 
short six couplet uh, sections that make up one long poem. I'm calling it one long poem. And then uh, the last section is is a series of narrative autobiographical sonnets. And that's sort of material uh, I haven't touched really the autobiographical stuff since my third book mm-hmm. back in 2009. So yeah, the question, I guess, Sammy, is like, what do you do next, right? Like, I've got this book in the can. It's on Simmer right now. I've got it up to different people who I trust. And the question is, what do I write next? And I've got a couple of ideas. Um, and I've written seven books at this point. So I, you know, I don't have anything to prove anymore to myself or to other people. I think my poems stand up really well against all of my contemporaries and my peers. Um, so I think if I'm going to write something next, it's going to have to be um, something I haven't done before. You know, maybe going back to form a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and taking my, a little more time between books. Or, you know, I might write a sort of a poetic memoir about um, alcohol addiction and recovery, which is something I've recovered from for the last uh, seven years. And I think I've gotten enough distance from that material that I could really, um, one, <laughs> you know, do it uh, justice, but also, you know, uh, it won't be as painful as, say, it would have been had I tried to do that, you know, one or two years out mm-hmm. uh, in recovery. So though, right now, that's, that's my thinking. That's my spot. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think the pendulum swing is coming back more towards a, a more autobiographical um, type of poetry. I, I love the surrealism. It's fun. Like, it's super fun to do that stuff. I've done it through three books now. Uh, so I don't think it's going away forever. But I feel the pendulum swinging a little bit more towards, okay, I can start talking about my life again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I started writing the more surrealist chaotic poems because my life was in chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, my marriage was ending. Mm-hmm. I was just recently sober. Uh, you know, I was single. I, I was, uh, uh, you know, a, a dad to two little kids. So it, it just felt, you know, like when things are out of control, um, my poetry, or my voice is going to be a little more out of control, you know, and maybe that's a controlling uh, aspect of the poem is that the poems are a little more out of control, not uh, so heavily um, edited and, uh, you know, cultivated like my first three books. And that the way that you were writing like Deepfake Serenade, like you said, with no filter, yeah. can you yeah. uh, can you write from an autobiographical point of view or perspective with no filter as well? Because that can sometimes be hard. Sometimes people don't want to share or dump all the contents of their heart onto the page yeah you gotta be you gotta be careful right because a a lot of that's the thing you gotta write it in a way that you're sort of coming at that subject matter that really difficult subject matter from the periphery you don't want to come up at it head on or i think it comes across a little bit like trauma porn or just from my point of view and Mm -hmm. uh I don't want to just dump all the you know i don't want to be this sort of drink along you know like (laughs) that You know, I'm writing this book about all these bad nights that I had. I think you you got to sort of come at it sideways uh, at the material. So there's, you know, you're inviting people into your life, but only to a certain extent. And then other things have to ha- happen in the poem. Like, you know, like really interesting things still need to happen with the language. Uh, so I what I tend to do 
is I'll I'll bring in a piece of autobiographical detail about I don't know being in rehab or something, and then uh, then I'll move away from it, uh, and then I may come back to it in the poem, or I may come back to that uh, in two or three poems later, um, but I don't tend to dwell on it. Uh, I think it's enough to just acknowledge that those sort of things have have happened, and you know, I think when you are writing poems um in particular you need to have real life stuff in your poems for you know like that's the glue that holds the whole thing together right like i was it uh marianne moore talking about you know poetry being an imaginary garden with real toads right and, <laughs> and that, that's sort of the idea right mm -hmm. you know writing a poem is an act of mischief it's an act of the imagination but i think ultimately it has to have some real things in it and if the things didn't happen exactly the way um, you write them in the poem that's fine as long as the emotion is is true like something about it has to be true you can't just sort of fake it uh and you can't rewrite the past um so these are all things i'm thinking about right now in terms of get, sitting down and getting down to a, a, a new book Semi-related to what you're saying, there's a line in Honey Dripper, uh, one of your yep. poems in Deep Fake Serenade, and it says, I'm all out of slogans and Johnny Cash lyrics uh, to explain yes. where we go from here, right? Yeah. Like, and that's kind of a little bit of what you're talking about. We're like, you got to find the next path now, right? Like you're almost kind of like yep. stuck, like a car, it's stuck in the mud. So you have this really nice yeah. car and you can kind of go anywhere, but it, no matter how much you step on the pedal, you can't quite get to where you want to go. That's right. And I think, uh, you know, a line like that really uh, is is a great line to uh, sort of identify at, at this point in my life. You know, I'm a, I'm a middle age, you know, my book before Deep Fake Serenade was called Midlife Action Figure, you know, and I think that was a great title um, because I think you're supposed to have things figured out, you know, by the time you're you're 50. And I've got a lot of things figured out, but there's so much other things you know mm -hmm. <laughs> you know adulting is still <laughs> extremely hard yeah. like you know if you were to tell me at 25 that i'd be 50 and still you know have not figured out a lot of things i think i would be very <laughs> depressed yeah. you know but it's it is Rubik's what cube. it is yeah for sure for mm -hmm. sure and what you're talking about too like in terms of like dwelling in the past or like being an adult and kind of figuring that out is mm -hmm. there a temptation to like linger a little bit too long in the past? Like to kind yeah. of wallow, I guess, for lack of a better term, in nostalgia? Sure. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, it's very tempting to, to sort of, we cast our memories in this sort of golden light. You know, we got all the 80s, you know, mm -hmm. like arcades and, you know. Um, Stephen King novels and yeah. Yeah, and all of that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why we, you see all of these, um, you know, reboots and, uh, you mm -hmm. know, uh, remaking of like It and things mm -hmm. of that nature. But I think ultimately, you know, like you see like a lot of people trying to monetize nostalgia in, you know, especially with restaurants and things like that. And um, I think that's why that ultimately fails because, you know, you, it's never the same experience. Like if you go to like a mother's restaurant, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not 
it's kind of the same, but it's not the same as it was in the late, you know, 70s, early 80s. And I think that's ultimately, uh, you know, why those kind of uh, nostalgia projects uh, never quite live up to what they say they're going to do because you can't relive the past. You just can't, you know, you can touch it in a poem. Mm -hmm. You can think about it in a poem, but ultimately it's not coming back. Stranger Things is kind of an example of what you're talking about where like it is definitely set in the 80s and they're using rotary phones yeah. and there's like little elements like that they're playing they go to the arcade and things like that but for the most part there's all this other stuff that's happening where like the upside down and Demogorgons and things like that and like Eleven has superpowers there's a whole bunch of other stuff that kind of overwhelms and that really has nothing to do with the 80s like it could have been set in any decade no not at all and I think I, I think you're that's well said I think uh, the 80s uh, form the setting, mm -hmm. the base of that show, but everything else that's going on in that show is, uh, you know, rather new and novel, and that's why it's so exciting and so interesting, mm -hmm. you know. But but you're right, you know, like the the D and D, uh, you know, mm -hmm. all of those the uh, satanic panic that came with it too. Yeah, all those allusions to the '80s are great, mm -hmm. and it gives it that a real nostalgic. Um, vibe to that show but ultimately you know that's that's a show that i don't think could have been made in the 80s you know mm -hmm. like that would have been treated it that way so right yeah so then the flip side of the coin of nostalgia cynicism then i think yeah in reading some of the stuff in like deep fake serenade is there kind of yeah. like an overlooked beauty i guess to cynicism uh yeah i think you know the cynic is just uh just a romantic at heart there's this deep wish for the world to be a better place mm -hmm. cynicism's kind of like the spark of hope i found mm. right yeah because you you look at the way things are but like cynicism is also like you recognize somebody's track record like as a politician or as an actor and they're like man you could be better do you know what i mean and like you yeah. want better and that's where i think cynicism that's the thing yeah it sparks the hope You're yeah, it just you, you're comparing what is to this like inner measuring stick you have of of how the world could be or how your life could be or you know, uh, and I think that's that's where cynicism comes from. You know, just this that gap mm -hmm. between those two things. In the the poems that are in Deepfake Serenade, like. I guess the, the cliche is these poems are holding up a mirror to society. We started talking about at the top about the Wizard of Oz and yeah. seeing the old man and the wizard. Mm -hmm. But eventually, like, do we have to acknowledge or look or even question the person holding up the mirror? Well, for me, yes. Like, uh, you know, I have to be careful. I, I always like if I'm making a judgment in a poem, I always sort of try to turn the poem back onto myself a little bit. Mm hmm. And I question, you know, I question my own judgments and my own uh, perceptions all the time. And I think that comes across in the poems, you know, this idea that we take in the world through the sense gates uh, and, you know, we make sense of it by, you know, taking in that information and then comparing it to our memories, uh, you know, um, our imagination, of course, plays a part in in all of that and we have to you know take that information and try to make sense of it you know make sense of the world so i'm always careful when i'm making judgments in a poem that you know who am i to to say you know this sucks and this is great mm -hmm. or whatever but uh 
I, I just ultimately, you know, you have to write the poem that, that you want to write, you know? So, so I, yeah, like, uh, I've got a lot of references to like P public image limited and the sex pistols and replacements and a whole bunch of bands from the eighties and stuff. Uh, that's you know? punk again. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, I think, I think so, you know, mm. and the violent Femmes and, and all of that great music that came out of that, that time period. Uh, and you know, it makes me smile to be able to write about that stuff, but you know, I don't think that's the best music in the world. It certainly was for me at 17 was mm -hmm. what I thought was the best music. And I try to make that distinction in the poems. Yeah. Like the, the judgment, like for example, one of the great lines I like is um, there's a poem you have male ego and you write yeah. the, the line is you brag about running with the bulls yet you live in a China shop. Yeah. Right. Like, well, I think, you know, we're getting to a point uh, in society where we've got like a lot of, you know, uh, like men have trouble sh sharing power, right? With, with women, you know, white men have uh, trouble sharing power with people of color. And, you know, like, so that poem was sort of dealing with a particular kind of uh toxic masculinity and maybe a little bit of white privilege in there too and uh and because i see it you know i see it on twitter all the time you know you go on social media you see people freak out for the stupidest reasons and mm -hmm. you know it's it ultimately comes down to the fact that they just don't want to share mm -hmm. they're like why you know why are we changing and i'm like you know like the genie's already out of the bottle like society's changing whether you want it to or not you know like you can't hold back the sea you know yeah. like it's it's a it's a sea change and you know you see it everywhere right uh but so yeah i think that poem in particular um was about those things that i mentioned and you you and i've already talked a number of times throughout this conversation sure. about music are you yeah. writing to music as well no i don't uh for me, I have to, for me to get into the zone that I do, I tend to write early in the morning. I get up, you know, uh, at six, I drink a huge pot of coffee and then mm -hmm. I'm down to work at seven mm -hmm. and I hammer a poem out, and, you know, three or four hours. That's, that's how I do it. Um, and certainly that's how I've done it for the last three books. My first three books took me a long time to write poems like i would take you know two weeks to write a poem mm -hmm. and i was very careful about every single line and i would be like really prescriptive in my use of form like i'm going to write this particular poem and in an eight line stanza and i'm going to do four of them and you know like i had really particular ideas i have no particular ideas anymore i just kind of go for it do the poems that you're writing now, or at least the poems in Deepfake Serenade, do they comfort you at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think if you want to know how my mind works, <laughs> you know, <laughs> read my poems. That's, mm -hmm. you know, like it, that sort of uh, the illusion of stream of consciousness and, you know, that making of connections and, uh, you know, uh, one line sort of leaping off to a new image or a new phrase 
that I hadn't thought of before. Oh yeah, I find that electric. So when I reread my poems, like today I, re I wrote my book, um, The Cloud Versus Grand Unification Theory. I haven't read that book in three years. So yeah, I read that book uh, today and ultimately, you know, it's like, oh, these poems are really great, you know, and I was really happy that I wrote that book. I felt really, really good about myself. So yeah, they do come from me. You just used the word electric. So I want to draw the analogy to Bob Dylan since we've been talking a lot about sure. music. And Bob Dylan has always kind of been like, um, kind of like shy or kind of standoffish in terms of like having his lyrics explained or some of his music explained. Yeah. Like, are we ruining the illusion of some of your work and your poetry by kind of digging into the dirt? No, I don't think so. I mean, like sometimes I sort of have an idea as to why I wrote something and other times I, I don't, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I'll say like, I'm not sure what I meant by that, but maybe, maybe it means this, right. Um, you know, a person like Bob Dylan, I think, you know, he's probably, people are very superstitious about their creative process. Right. And, uh, he, he, there's a guy who's very prolific. Uh, he's very good at what he does. Uh, and you, you know, like for me, especially the last five years, I've written three full books, something like that in five years. And so I've been really, really prolific. Um, I tend to read the people I read, people like Bob Hickok or Dean Young, mm -hmm. who just recently passed away, or Kim Adonisio. I tend to read poets who I really respect, whose poetry I really love, but also tend to be workers. Like they, they work. They're always got something fresh out. You know, it's always top shelf. Uh, and, you know, that's when I'm putting together a book or I'm writing a poem, that's what I'm thinking about. I don't want to redo what I've done before. I want to write at a high level, at a high caliber, uh, and uh, hopefully people will like it. You know, ultimately, I, I have no control over that. So I live in Kitchener. Mm -hmm. I don't live in Toronto. I don't see poets all the time. So I have no idea how I'm received. Like, I, I really don't anymore. It's not like when I was 30 and going into Toronto every weekend, uh, and hanging out Friday and Saturday nights at the Victory Cafe where all the poets were hanging out. And I sort of <laughs> had a, you know, an mm -hmm. idea as to how I was doing, right? Mm -hmm. But that's all stopped, you know? And so, yeah, it, it's hard for me to, to sort of measure my, my success. But ultimately, I, I'm writing for myself, so. Making it hard to measure your success, is that also impacted by the fact that you're writing poetry? I mean, the, the, oh, pop, probably. the pop culture thing is everything's dying, but nothing ever dies. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the thing, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, someone once said, I think it was Ken Norris, uh, the Canadian-American poet, and he talked about, uh, he said something, to write a poem is to do something useless in a world possessed by utility. And I thought that was just brilliant. That you is know, brilliant, like, yeah. And it's so punk, you mm -hmm. know, and this idea, like there's, you know, poems are useless, but that's just their superpower, right? They can't monetize it unless you're Rupi Carr or someone like that. For the most part, people aren't making money off of it. The only good reason to do it is because you have to do it. And that's the source of its power. Like, that's the source of its authenticity. That's why it's always going to tell the truth, mm -hmm. because there's no reason for it to, to be fake, you know? Um, I, you know, like, the poem is as Pepsi commercial. I, that's just not going to happen. Right. So <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that's why when I'm writing, you know, I, I teach high school. So I'm always teaching my kids, why should you read a poem? They're quick. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Read one. <laughs> yes. Put it down. Yeah. Read another one tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Put it down. You know, read one while you're waiting for the bus. You know, and here's the thing. It's never going to tell you that your life is going to be perfect. You know, it doesn't need filters. Uh, you know, you, commercials are always telling you if you drink this beer, if you wear this vest or you wear these sneakers, you know, you're going to be cool. And poetry does not say any of those things. It tells you exactly what, what is important in life, you know, and, and that is, you know, educating one's emotions, family friendships uh you know your your connection to nature you know it it asks the big questions too so i think that's the source of poetry's power you're very much like the joe strummer of poetry you're very much like these are like the ethos of the clash that kind of like they had a little bit more i guess because they had the political bend so they were kind of wrestling with more of the bigger issues and say the sex pistols right yeah, sure. And and again, those guys were workers. They just like worked out so many great songs. Uh, and, you know, like London Calling, that was one of my favorite albums when I was 18. You know, mm-hmm. I think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm like a lot of people who grew up in that era. We, we were just in awe of The Clash, you know, like going to Collingwood to, to teen dances with my my friends drinking in the car, listening to, uh, you know, um, combat rock, you know, like it was awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, those guys were, were terrific, but yeah, I, you know, Joe Strummer, from what I know of him, he, he there was a guy who worked, 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 worked as a musician. Uh, you know, he always had that social commentary thing going even before the clash. Uh, and so when he met Mick Jones and they got together with, Topper Heaton and Paul Simone, uh, you know, it was just magic. It was ready to go. For me, my my particular apprenticeship as a poet was long and difficult and hard, and I failed. Uh, you know, I failed to write anything decent till I was about 30 years of age. Um, and then I just dug really, really deep because mm-hmm. it, it meant a lot to me to get a book out like and I wasn't di- digging deep enough and you know once you hit 30 and you know like I've invested a lot of time money and energy I, I did an MFA in a creative writing at uh, Concordia University and I, I, I really see my thesis as a failure you know that was hard that was a hard thing to do I stopped writing for eight months I thought I was done as a poet uh, but as soon as I picked up my pen and knew I had to write again. I knew I, I just needed to work even harder than before. Uh, I look at a lot of younger Canadian poets that are coming out with books at 25 and 26 and, and you know, 23. Now I'm in awe of these kids who are, you know, writing that well, that, that early on. It, it's, it's quite incredible. What you're talking partly about is taste as well. Sure. Your musical taste, obviously, like you've uh, established, you have really good musical taste between The Clash and Violent Femmes <laughs> and Red Hot Chili Pepper. So yeah. we know that that side of you is has good taste. But then, how do you kind of develop the poetry side of your taste, right? So that to know that by the time you got right. to thirty, these poems were good. Whereas the stuff before your MFA, this was no good. This goes in the recycling bin. How do you develop that kind sure. of taste? Well, I think you got to get beyond sort of who's the cool poet in town, you know, like. When I was uh, at Guelph, you know, I was looking at the, the sort of the cool books that were coming out with the cool presses in Canada at the time. And I was trying to emulate 
that particular style, especially lyric poets mm -hmm. of the, you know, early nineties, let's say. Okay. And, uh, and so, you know, I would emulate them. Oh, that's just my cat. Sorry. He's being, he's making ridiculous sounds in the background. Um, but I think ultimately I only started getting really, you know, anywhere with poetry once I enlarged beyond, you know, who's cool this season and really started going, okay, here are some poets that are going to be lifelong influences on me. P people like uh, Philip Levine, especially the American poet, Larry Levis, the American poet uh, early on, Patrick Lane uh, in Canada was, uh, was an early influence. Um, and then from there, I, I moved on to like other uh, American poets, people like uh, Dave Smith, Mark Irwin. I just read very widely. Uh, for, for whatever reason, there wasn't a lot of British poets that I was interested in. Uh, uh, I was definitely followed and read all of Simon Armitage. That There's a guy who, who can write extremely well, um, you know, formally, but he's creatively just really, really interesting. And there's a lot of spark and um, pep in his poems mm -hmm. that uh, I tried to emulate and failed miserably. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that's the thing that all poets need to do. Stop worrying about what three presses are doing in, in in Canada, and like you worry about, you know, reading very widely and very discursively, um, and that's how you're going to get good. It's just by you know reading, 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 and and having a lot of uh, knowledge about uh, not only Canadian poetry but American poetry or uh, British poetry, maybe. Um, um, maybe Australian poetry and lots of really interesting things are happening in the States right now. A lot of young people coming up that are just brilliant poets. I'm thinking of people like Alex Dimitrov or Chen Chen or uh, Natalie Shapiro. Just, yeah, you got to be on top of it, you know, and if you don't, if you're not reading lots, you're never going to get anywhere as a poet because no one's going to buy your book because you're, you're just not, you know, it, it's a labor of love, right? It's it's a vocation, mm -hmm. you know, it's a calling. So unless you got it, that fire, it's not going to happen for you. So, yeah, to kind of wrap this up, like what you're talking about is like almost like what you were doing back in the day, which is digging in the stacks, right? You go to the record shop or the CD shop, yeah. right? And you're looking for like imports or unique albums or something, yeah. right? Like, and that's the same thing with like what you're doing with poetry by reading a lot. Like you're basically digging through the stacks and you're looking for those gems or those things that kind of connect. <laughs> Absolutely. And as soon as you get like, you know, to that point in your collection where I need to own all of Hayden Carew's poetry. Mm -hmm. And not only do I need to own all of Hayden Carew's books, I need to own the chat books. I need to own the broadsides that are up there, you know, and I, I got into that for a long time the really hard to find stuff i would i would look online and i would find you know a broadside poster of a, a, a poem going for a hundred bucks and it's signed by Cruz and i get it framed and you know i was doing stuff like that too i pull back a little bit from that but yeah that's when you're <laughs> you know when your level of uh obsession with certain poets gets to the level of you know you need to own not just the the poems uh but the the chapbook as well in the the broadsides that's when you're you're probably doing on the right path yeah i mean coldplay put out a couple of eps before they hit it big 
So if you can yeah. find those, they're worth a lot of money, right? So yeah, hey, I put out a chat book with uh, Junction Books, my friend Carlton Wilson, before I I put out my full length. Uh, first book of poetry um which you know won a big award in canada at the time and uh, yeah like that was uh, extremely gratifying for me to see um my work i i forget it was like eight poems or something like mm -hmm. that eight to ten poems maybe uh in a really high quality uh chat book you know we had a chat book launch for it people were excited about it and I remember thinking, you know, I'm starting to take myself very seriously as a poet. Other people are taking me seriously as a poet. And again, that idea of just putting your nose to the, the poem stone and just write hard because, you know, your first book is, you know, how a lot of people are going to uh, get to know you as a poet. Right. And so that, yeah, doing that that was a, a big deal to me. And it certainly gave me a lot of, um, you know, willpower to, to just, uh, work really hard on the first book and, uh, people really seem to enjoy it went on to second printing. So it, it sort of worked out. That's great. That's a positive note. We can end it there before I okay. let you go though. You recently tweeted out that you were considering buying Bell and Sebastian tickets. Yeah. Did you end up buying them, or are you going to go to the well, show? Or? I, I think they're I think they're on sale uh, on Friday, so I tried to buy them today, but they're, they yeah I think there's a pre-sale for like the more expensive tickets, but uh, yeah I, I'll be definitely picking some tickets up to see Bell and Sebastian in Toronto in the spring. Yeah, they're a great band, and they're another one. That, oh, fantastic! Band. Yeah, they've lasted for like years and never really had any quote unquote like really mainstream hits that a lot of people would know, but like. Just, right. just kind of keep trucking and just like you said, put your uh, yeah. your nose down, get the work done, and kind of like keep yeah. going. And I love that their poems are so many of their songs. Excuse me, are like uh, stories. You mm -hmm. know, they're they're beautiful melodies, but they're also these wonderful stories. So yeah, I'm uh, and there, there's an optimism to that music too. So uh, yeah, I'm excited to see them. All right, thank you, Chris Banks. The poetry collection is Deep Fake Serenade. It's out now. And as you said, you have a new collection coming out in 2023 or 2024? 2024, fall. Okay. So we'll look out for that. Thank you so much, Chris. Okay. Thank you, Sammy. Yo, that was Chris Banks. His poetry collection is called Deepfake Serenade, and I'm Sammy, host of My Summer Lair. After hearing that conversation, how could you not want to pick up Deepfake Serenade? I also recommend his 2019 collection, Midlife Action Figure. And you know, I, I've been tinkering with the premise that writing, poetry especially, is a great example of the sunk cost fallacy. Sunk cost fallacy is a greater tendency to continue an endeavor once an investment in money, effort, or time has been made. We do this when we don't walk out of terrible movies. You're an hour into the movie. You paid for the ticket. You put on pants. You parked. Time, money, and effort, including putting on pants. And even though the movie's wretched, you stay. Sunk cost fallacy. The sunk cost fallacy shows up in our lives often. Staying in a relationship that really isn't going anywhere because, again, it's been how many years? 
The cost of all those dates, the effort of finding someone new versus the comfort of the familiar. This happens at work too. The effort of finding someone new versus the comfort of the familiar. You keep terrible employees around because management doesn't want to hire and train new staff. Sunk cost fallacy. Management hired badly in the first place, and now they want some sort of return on the investment. Even though all the staff know there is no ROI coming. NBA players who are draft busts. They get training and coaching and access to lavish facilities. They get paid millions of dollars. And they're terrible. Sunk cost fallacy. And so tragically, I wonder if poetry is an example of the sunk cost fallacy. Is abandonment more beneficial? Is there enough ROI to justify all the time and effort and work? Hard damn work. Chris acknowledges that. Hard damn work to make this all happen. To make what happen? I'm grateful poets like Chris Banks continue to write poetry. And I hope my gratitude is enough. Speaking of gratitude, I'd be so grateful if you signed up for my Substack newsletter. My pal Sammy, Substack.com. My pal Sammy dot Substack.com or go to mysummerlayer.com slash subscribe. It's loaded with sarcastic pop culture goodness. A text version of this very program. I mean, how could you not want that in your life? Thank you so much for listening to me in a Netflix world. Deepfake Serenade, yo.